This is Rabbi Nitlea Sarna and Rabbi David Wolkenfeld. Shalom and welcome to the Straw Hat. We are the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the beautiful Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. This week's episode has two segments and an interview. In our first segment, we will talk about tefillah, davening, prayers, and what parts of our regular prayer service are absolutely necessary, cannot be skipped, and what other parts of it are more about the experience and what you're supposed to be thinking about while you're saying it, and maybe you could say less with more kavana, with more intensity, um, as opposed to more with less kavana, less concentration. Second, we'll have a conversation about travel and some of the complexities that are involved with that and Shabbat observance. And lastly, we will have a conversation with Molly Jarrett, uh, a member of our community who runs one of our Shabbat morning programs and also just finished learning all of the Babylonian Talmud with the previous Dafyomi cycle. Hope you enjoy. I wanted to talk about not saying things. There are parts of the tefillah, parts of our um, siddur, where I think if you say every word, you're missing the point. And I wanted to like go through some of those points and, and explain why. Yeah, just a funny story. When I I remember, I think when I was a kid, I don't remember, maybe it was one of my cousins who's not religious or something like that, saw me davening and was like, do you read through that whole book every day? And I was like, no. <laughs> but it's not just that at Shachri you don't say, you know, Musaf for high holidays. Even within Shachri, there could be pieces that you, in the busyness of your life, decide to skip. So we thought we'd talk maybe about how to make those decisions. Yeah. So maybe first we'll talk about the parts where we really think it's valuable to say every word um, really carefully and each word matters. So the Shema is one of those places, right? The mitzvah is to say the three paragraphs of the Shema. Even if you say it, maybe especially if you say it regularly, it's worth like slowing down and making sure that you're saying each word carefully and pronounced uh, appropriately and correctly. And you'd be surprised because you might think, oh my gosh, I learned Shema as a child. Of course I say it right. But actually the things you learn as a child usually are the places Just where you decades, know the, the mistakes, yeah. mistakes. <laughs> mistakes yeah. have been like caked in for decades. So it's really, yeah, really hardest to say correctly. Uh, the Amidah is another place where, you know, according to the Rambam, the point of the Amidah was to allow everyone to have beautiful, eloquent, poetically um, exquisite prayers. And uh, and each theme that's mentioned in the Amidah is a important. So every, the Amidah also, I think every every word should be said, whether it's a weekday Amidah or Shabbat or Yom Tov Amidah, each word should be said. But there are other parts of tefillah where I really believe the point is is not to say every word. The point is to accomplish something. And if you do say every word and that's the focus and uh, that's the goal, then it's very likely that one isn't uh, meeting the, the basic goal of what these parts of the Sidor are for. So a classic example, maybe the key example, most important example of this, I think, is Pesuket de Zimra, these psalms of praise that are added before Shachrit begins in earnest. They are meant to uh, get us into the headspace for prayer. And to, you know, you're just walking off the street and, and start talking to God. You have to work yourself up to that. And that's what Sukkot Zimmer is for. Uh, but that doesn't entail every single word. Like if, if you, it's, it's not, what are you accomplishing? If in order to finish in time with the congregation, you're rushing through and not even thinking about what you're saying. No, like should be done a little bit slowly and carefully so that you are finishing at the same time as the congregation, so you can pray with the congregation. And whatever you're saying is actually having an impact on, on, on that goal of getting yourself ready for prayer. Great. So how should one decide what of Pesuket Zimra they're going to say and what not? So as a minimum framework for Pesuket Zimra, we have Baruch Shemar, which is the blessing before Pesuket Zimra, and Yishtabach is the blessing 
after Pazuke Zimra. So you should say those. It's the blessing before and the blessing after. And the part in the middle, at a very minimum, we should, like Ashrei should be said. We saw this in Dafyomi mm-hmm. earlier in this week. Uh, Ashrei, Psalm 145, is uh, praised by, uh, by the Talmud for being an acrostic, an alphabetical acrostic, which is pretty fancy and neat. And it has this beautiful verse, that God opens God's hand and sustains all living things, a beautiful, powerful idea. Mm-hmm. So it has two great things in Ashrei. So that's like the core, the pinnacle of Pesukei Zimmer, sort of bare minimum, Baruch She'emar, Ashrei, and Yishtabach. And I think other paragraphs of Pesukei Zimmer should be added based on the ones that um, speak to you the most, that contain phrases that... Uh, inspire you. Maybe each day, each week, each month, you pick a different one, and and you know you say it slow enough that it takes you uh, several minutes. As the congregation is mumbling Sukkot Zimra, you're doing your thing and getting in that right headspace and getting excited and geared up and ready for tefillah. And I also think though that it doesn't make sense to kind of pick. Say, you know, okay, Baruch Shemar, Asher, Yishtabach, and then one other thing. Like, I think it does make sense to kind of familiarize yourself with the totality of the Psuke de Zimra canon, let's say, um, because there's so much in there that's so beautiful and so many ways of thinking about God and praising God that are really beautiful and that can come through for you in different times in your life. The first person who ever I remember saying this to me was um, a teacher I had in middle school who said, you know, one time I, I went through a terrible breakup and I thought like, there's, you know, like God's not here for me in this. And then I saw in Pesuket Zimra it says, right, that God heals the brokenhearted. And, and I really connected to it and I realized that our liturgy is there for you. And, and, and I really do believe that um, even more so than I did in in middle school that um, there's so much liturgy in part because there's so much human experience yeah. and that some of it's going to tap into, you're going to tap into at different times. That's an argument for knowing all of it, even if you're not saying all of it, right? If you know right. all of it, then it's there in your spiritual Rolodex. It's there mm-hmm. on your on your bookcase so you can pull from because you know where to find these various themes and phrases, terms of phrase and, and beautiful language and imagery. Uh, but in terms of, you know, in our uh, standard congregation, you have between five and eight minutes for Pesuket so you're not going to say all those paragraphs sure. and let them like absorb, you know, be absorbed and transform you. Um, so, so it should be said, I think, slowly. You know, the, the, there's the custom in many yeshivot uh, where uh, I think this was actually originally the universal custom that there was no chazan, no shlich tzibur for pesuket zimra, but the prayer leader would not, you know, on Shabbat, not until sh- until shochen ad, everyone is on their own in shul, saying their own words at their own pace. And then at Shochinad, you know, somebody starts uh, leading prayers. And then on weekdays, it would be no one gets up there until Yishtabach. I love that. I think that's like an incredible... Um, the challenge is you got to show up, you know, 20 minutes before. The congregation needs the discipline <laughs> to show up and to then actually not schmooze with friends and exactly. read Lukut uh, Shatim, but actually like do some challenging, difficult spiritual work of preparing to pray. Uh, but the alternative of uh, how could you possibly have a Shalik Tzibor as a pace setter for something as personal and private and individualized as Pesuket Zimra? Like that's sort of the absurdity of what we're doing. Hey, right now, you know, everyone is uh, engaged in this really, you know, uh, contemplative, meditative process of getting in that right headspace to pray by saying Psalms. And I'm going to tell you the pace at which we're doing it. Uh, you know, it's a- So you say it in a way that makes it sound so ludicrous. But if you've ever gone to like a meditation group or a guided meditation group, I've never done. No. Okay, well, should you decide to go? Okay. <laughs> Mishkan, I think, has one that meets every week. Okay. Um, and if people were interested, we could, you know, roll one out at SBI <laughs> too. Um, not instead of Sukhaita Zimra. But the point I'm trying to make is 
that um, you are, that's exactly what you're doing. And like, a, and oh, people go, it's not just that people, I mean, some people use like the Headspace app and just like sit on their, on their own at home and, and work on mindfulness. Um, but many people go to mindfulness groups where they're actually going through these guided group mindfulness experiences. Uh, okay. So if, so you could think of Psuke de Zemra um, like that, which is like first imagine like the heat starts in your toes and then yeah, moves yeah, up your yeah, body, yeah, and that, yeah. right? Like that. So like it, it could imagine like psuchedism right to be like that. But the I think one of the hard things is then figuring out like how to make it meaningful in that same way, such that you're having a group experience of getting ready for tefillah and praising Kadosh Baruch Hu together. Yeah, like Gemara says that the Chassidim Rishonim would spend an hour in some sort of contemplative meditation before each prayer they recited and the vestige of that is Pesuke de Zimra so it seems like it used to take a lot longer and was something much more meditative yeah and I would say like it's worth thinking for yourself how do I best prepare for tefillah um, like I know for me like when I leave my house in the morning on my walk to show like I say brachud on my walk to show like mm. my tefillah experience for the day I mean starts when I wake up in the morning obviously with like modani and whatever but like by the time I get to show I'm already like doing the thing mm. um and like I don't say baruch shamar until I get to show but but everything up until baruch shamar I've recited already on my walk to show and I find that that like 10 minutes mm-hmm. of walking is is a good preparation for me for um for tefillah in the morning yeah um yeah. and I'm sure other people have you know your cup of coffee it could be a similar kind of um, thing but it's worth it's worth kind of thinking about what do I need in order to get into a headspace in which I'm going to talk to the almighty um, and that answer could be individual and psukidism could be that answer but then how do you approach psukidism and how do you approach it productively such that you're actually fulfilling the goals and and just in case you were sort of listening to this conversation and saying but it's printed in the sitter I have to say every word so here's another important Jewish book of the Shulchan Aruch saying that maybe you don't have to say every word the first siman in the Shulchan Aruch the first entry in the Shulchan Aruch says tov me'at tachanunim bekavana meharbot it's better to have fewer prayers said with intentionality than to have many and have no intentionality. Yes, and Kutner's famous quip, it's also better to have a little bit without intentionality than a lot without intentionality. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the point is not what you say, it's it's how you say it, not how much you say. And this would apply, I think, as well to... Uh, to Tachanun, right? You know, certainly on a Monday, Thursday, the long Tachanun, it's a lot of paragraphs. And uh, I think it's better to say one of them, like really slowly and like let the words penetrate you and, and break you uh, and feel them and, and, and let the, like express that sadness and that despair and, and just fall on your face and in God's presence. And rather than rush through and say you know, all those paragraphs uh, uh, faster than you can um, absorb them. This would be true for Slichot. Uh, we say on fast days or leading up to Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, uh, very beautiful, elaborate poetry. Uh, most very hard. Hard poetry. Yeah, you could read them in English maybe. Maybe read the poems in English and you know join in the congregation Hebrew for the Yud Gimomidos in between. Or maybe uh, say one really, really slowly and just let the structure of the poem kind of just like overwhelm you with its beauty mm-hmm. and its elegance and the complexity and profundity of their its ideas and rather than you're flipping pages rushing 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 to to finish in time uh, for, right for like i would say like flipping pages is not a spiritual practice um, <laughs> but but i would say it is maybe an educational practice meaning like when i was a kid um learning how to use the cedar learning how to keep up in tefillah learning how to identify i just heard this too and okay now i know it's this page then in that case flipping pages is worthwhile for 
sure um, because you're just learning the mechanics of tefillah. So if you feel like you're a tefillah beginner, then maybe flipping pages in order to understand what's happening in the service and how is that reflected in this book that I have in front of me, then flipping pages I actually think could be worthwhile. So we spend years and years learning to say the tefillah in time to keep up with the congregation in order to learn not to say them so fast that we are keeping up with the congregation. But I think you might be right. You might be right. But Yeah, but I'm there. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I think that's what I'm trying to say here. I think there's a, I had this experience when I started teaching where I, I found myself um, – you know, making source source sheets and translating, you know, primary sources into English for source sheets that I would use for teaching, and uh, thinking, oh, if only I had, you know, such and such, you know, the Ramban in English is like, you know, the Chevelle translation. If only I had a copy of that lying around, I could that save me time and like making the source sheets. And and I just thought, wow, the irony that I spent so many years in yeshiva learning, learning how to read the Ramban in the original. And like then, now yeah. I'm spending all my time like polishing cal- after translation so I can make source sheets quicker. Uh, <laughs> but some other spheres of life for that that irony uh, exists definitely but yeah so here's us just saying like find the pieces of your davening that you connect to um it's really important and there's certain parts of davening that um that just are kind of torah level commandments kriyachma is a torah level commandment uh, to say at the right time every day correctly and um and the omida obviously is a very very important part of of our liturgy, but but other parts, you know, find ways to connect to them because that's actually the point. The point is to feel something. So lots of people have just gotten back from various vacations, travel. Um, it's a really beautiful thing. It's a great privilege uh, that we live in a time and place where travel is, you know, fun and relatively easy. Um, but it does pose some challenges sometimes um, around Shabbos, and we thought we might talk about that. Um, so the first thing is that you should definitely plan for Shabbos. <laughs> whether you're home, whether you're away, there should always be a plan. How is Shabbos going to work wherever I'm going? Am I in a hotel? Have I figured out where the stairs are? Have I figured out how I'm going to get in and out of my room? Have I figured out all the lights and And whatever? all the positive myths of Shabbat. Where am I going to, like, as I'm planning my two-week itinerary, like, I want to spend Shabbat someplace where I'm going to have, like, pleasant Shabbat meals. Maybe even a shul I can go to. But if not, just, like, like can I have, like, good meals that are going to be pleasant? Can I, this day spent without Malacha is going to be a pleasant experience for me in the context of my travels. And it's really, I think, very appropriate to have your plans built around Shabbat rather than Shabbat be like an afterthought that gets thrown in. Definitely. Also, shul tourism is really fun. Um, I would definitely say like hearing a drusha delivered in, you know, modern Greek, like definitely a highlight. Um, The only word I, it was this week's Parsha, the only word I understood was Moshe. Um, Same in any language. (laughs) Same in any language. Um, And so, but... Again, it requires preparation. Most of Europe will not let you into Shul if you don't prepare in advance and send in a copy of your passport and blah, blah, blah. So that's like another note for travel. And, and, and it's it's even true that, that you know, even Chabad appreciates if you tell them in advance that you're going to be crashing for, for Shabbat and maybe need a meal or something. Right? They, also... they like to be paid also, usually. Right. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> um, so that, yeah, so that, that's so planning in advance, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes, uh, and I guess also within planning in advance, like... Datelines, you know, people sometimes, you know, you're buying your tickets, you don't realize, you think it's a Thursday, you think you're not, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh no, with like... My flight lands on in, Friday night. Exactly. Like you don't realize that flying into Tokyo, whatever, like ends up, you know, you thought you were fine, but actually it's yesterday or something. I don't know. I don't know how right. these things work. I just know that people sometimes, uh, you know, thoughtful people who are like trying to think about this in a conscientious way sometimes gets tripped up by 
issues of crossing the dateline or, you know, with international travel, just the time zones can be, can, are not your friends always when you're trying to incorporate Shabbat or, or Pesach or whatever it might be, like can be tricky. Right. Or understanding actually what it takes to get from the airport to where you're staying and not realizing like, shoot, there's actually only a boat that goes once a day and it goes, you know, Saturday morning or something like that. Correct. Correct. Right. It's like the it's like the river Sambation in Jewish lore, right? This was where the yeah. uh, this Jewish kingdom on the other side of the river, but, it, you know, you could only pass across the river on Shabbat. So no one ever went there. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, and other, also sometimes there are horrific, you know, traffic delays and, you know, really totally beyond your control. Your flight lands at... Uh, you land at O'Hare at 8 in the morning and get into a taxi, and all of a sudden it's uh, sun is setting and you haven't moved. I don't know. That seems a little extreme, but uh, whatever. From O'Hare, you could probably walk, but yeah. <laughs> things happen, right? You things some, happen. Things happen. And, it, it, you know, it's the backbone of many a Hasidic story. The Rebbe <laughs> was traveling from somewhere to somewhere else, and it was Arab Shabbos, and the sun was setting. And in those stories, what happens is you pull over to the side of the road, you take out your bread, Eliyahu and Navi comes, <laughs> and everything is grand. However, you cannot rely on that happening to you. So what happens in those exigent circumstances? Yeah, so, it's, yeah, so this is like a complicated, you know, series of halachot, which I don't think we can treat comprehensively, but a few things to be aware of. Um, one is that there's this liminal time between sunset and dark where uh, Shabbat has not, like, descended in all of its, like, biblical force, even though we are very strict about Shabbat starting at sunset. Even before sunset, we began observing the restrictions of Shabbat. Uh, in fact, between sunset and dark, uh, which could be, depending on the latitude and time of year, could be uh, 10 or 20 minutes or 40 minutes even, during that banish mashot liminal time, things are a little bit more lenient, and especially uh, malacha done through the aid of a Gentile, for example, a taxi driver or a traveling mm-hmm. companion, uh, is, is less severe for the sake of a child, certainly, or even for the sake of an adult who who's onik Shabbos, who's enjoyable Shabbos depends on getting to the hotel room, getting to your in-laws house, getting to mm-hmm. wherever it is that you know food is, and you're expected on Shabbat. Like that, that is um, that's one whole series of leniencies. You know, what one step more. You know, and I and I, I've actually been in a situation of, of a severely delayed train. It was, this was a train. It was. I don't know if this is still true. Amtrak doesn't own their own tracks south of D.C. So I was taking a train into D.C. where I was spending Shabbat in, in Silver Spring years and years ago. and uh, But I was in Virginia traveling to D.C. from the south uh, by train. And they're, they're sharing tracks with freight lines. And um, Amtrak gets booted by the freight lines. They, get, they have right of way. So there was an orange juice train that <laughs> was going through and we were waiting for you know like it was a tight schedule to begin with but we were mm. stopped for at least an hour or two on a relatively short you know f- and I would say like I have relatives who do not travel on Friday period like your wedding's in the next sitting over 15 minute drive they won't go yeah. um, and, and, and that's that's uh, that's why I mean it's, it's, there's certainly advantages of not traveling on Friday there are advantages of traveling on Friday and so, so that course, was the case yeah. so we arrived in D.C. the Saturday night yet set we got into it we took the train to the Silver Spring, the Southern Nets said. But I think as we were we were in the taxi going from the train station to the house we were staying as the sun was setting and the taxi drive, you know, so I think we, I don't even recall, it, we, you know, a few things like, you know, pay the driver in advance. And so, you know, and it was, uh, the driver was not Jewish. We had them help us open the door for us and, and turn on mm-hmm. some lights in the, in the you know, uh, in the place we oh, were staying. Once saying. we got, we were staying in an empty house that had been vacated. So, uh, and this was all during Banish Measure. This was all between when the sun set and when it was dark. It was a little... 
you know, driving through this Jewish neighborhood, seeing everyone outside of our taxi, like walking to shul, or sort of like ducking in our seats. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, but, but, but that was actually, I think, like the appropriate thing to do because our Onik Shabbat, like the meals, you know, the people who were hosting us, the places where we had meals and beds and all the places, that was all in this location. And we could get to that location uh, without um, violating any, you know, biblical Shabbat violation. It was banished Meshot, which is not the full biblical Shabbat, and it was through Amir Lenochri, a secondary uh, rabbinic restriction of having Gentiles help us uh, do things for us on Shabbat that we couldn't otherwise, which we shouldn't do normally, but for these circumstances, it's possible. A more extreme situation, Moshe Feinstein talks about a case where you forget to turn off the light bulb in your refrigerator on Shabbat, and let's say this is the old-fashioned... Um, uh, incandescent light bulb where it's fire where it's a, we a, consider a, it fire. let's say it's yeah. a burning filament so yeah. it's a real it's, it could be a biblical violation to open that refrigerator door mm-hmm. um, so that's a case where he says you can ask a Gentile to open the refrigerator for you and unscrew the bulb or, or take your food out for lunch mm-hmm. and that's sort of an interesting case because there's no you're not going to starve, right? You know, if right, you're you have, like, crackers somewhere, you know? Yeah, you're, you're not going to experience hardship. You're not going to experience hunger. But you're also not going to have, like, Onik Shabbos. You're not going to have a pleasant, you know, Shabbos meal uh, unless this Gentile does this malacha for you. And you're, and he says, in that case, you can ask. Well, that could apply if the, you know, let's say, you know, a flight gets in late, a train gets in late, a bus drops you off at the bus depot late. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to freeze to death, God forbid. You're not going to be, you're not going to starve. You're not going to experience real privation, but you're also going to have zero Onik Shabbos, right? You're going to be spending 25 hours in an airport, in a bus depot, without meals, without a bed. Like that's not pleasant. It's not hardship. It's not adversity as that would be understood by like anyone on earth. Well, no, I mean, it depends who you are. Like, meaning like I would not, if a woman called me and said, I'm in a bus depot, should, is it safe for me to spend Shabbos here? I'd be like, absolutely not. You must leave. Um, it kind of depends who you are and where the busty boys. Correct, the, correct, correct. There are, wait, let's that. get to safety in a minute. Let's say, right. let's assume, let's say an airport, okay? okay. Uh, which yeah. maybe people feel a little safer about, maybe. Yeah. Uh, or a train say, I don't know, you're right. You know, so it, it's, there's no safety concern. There's no sure. starvation concern. There's no hunger or cold, or you're not exposed to the elements in any right, way. Right. Uh, no criminal elements there, per se. Um, and it's just a matter of zero Onik Shabbos. Uh, so... Uh, it seems that that also, like Amir Lenochri, having a Gentile do malacha for you, like driving you someplace um, and taking your money, you know, like that could also be permissible under those circumstances. Again, with caveats and with other details, which we can't go into on the podcast, but that might also be just one paradigm to think through. And the third thing would be if it's if it's not safe. So uh, I think, in, unfortunately, maybe it's not safe to be a woman in a bus depot overnight, right? That's that's probably true in, in many bus depots. Uh, it's maybe not safe to just pull over a car by the side of a road in certain neighborhoods or in certain even, I don't know, deserted stretches of highway. Right, Maybe sure. not so safe, yeah. right? Okay, I don't know. Yeah. So, uh, so that would be a case where if, it, if it's actually there's a danger to you in life, so you then you can keep driving yourself, right? You can you should do malach yourself if it's not safe to stop the car, right? It's the summer and you're in a lot of water, and it, right, that, right, you should never be in a like a Shabbos should not put you in in physical danger. That's that's uh, that's clear. So, anyways, the point is when you're traveling. Take care. <laughs> um, enjoy. Um, make plans for Shabbos. Give yourself wiggle room. There's always unexpected things that happen. But if you find yourself in like a really, really complicated situation, just know like it's not like, oh, if I make a phone call to a member of the clergy, they're just going to be like, well, you know, we can't help you. Sorry. Uh, right? Like call. There's things you can do and we can we can try and be useful in those situations. 
We're here with Molly Jarrett. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I hear you listen to the podcast during your rather long commutes. I do. It adds some excitement to the long drive. <laughs> so where do you commute to? I commute to Northbrook every day. Oh, wow. Because you work at? Solomon Schechter Day School of Metropolitan Chicago. Wow, wow, wow. So we're really glad that you live in Lakeview. Yeah, happy to be here. <laughs> um, and Molly um, not only is a member of our show, but also works for the show on Shabbat in our youth group. She runs Yaladinu. It's amazing. Do you want to say a word about what Yaladinu is and what you do? Yaladinu is an awesome group that gathers kindergarten and first grade students together on Shabbat morning. We do some davening, we do some storytelling, we talk about the Parsha, and we play games and have snack. <laughs> All the good things, basically. Um, yeah, I've heard some wonderful Parsha-related discussion questions come out of the classroom over the, over the weeks. My favorite was... If you were moving without a U-Haul, what would that be like? Really challenging. Really challenging, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> TVs I heard from some friends in Yaladinu would be really hard to carry, so maybe we should save those for another time or put them on a camel. Oh, put your TV on a camel. Yes. Okay, yes. I think we definitely have the timeline right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, and so what brought you to Chicago? I got this awesome job at Solomon Schechter, and I was excited to explore a new community outside of New York. So you weren't just like, I heard about this cool show, Anshe Shalom, I want to move. Also that. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Well, we're really glad that you came. Um, And when did you move into Lakeview? I moved here on July 17th. Wow, that was a very specific answer. It was. (laughs) And you're originally from New York. Yes, born and raised. And even through college, right? Yes, I I started my college journey in Maryland, and then I moved back to New York and finished up my degree at Hunter. So, very New York. Very New York. Well, we're really glad you decided to break out of that and join us here in the Midwest. I am too. People are very friendly here. (laughs) Who knew? And Molly, at some point in your New York born and raised this, you started learning Dafyomi at like a ridiculously young age. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I started learning Dafyomi at the ripe old age of 17. Um, so it was my senior year of high school. It was started somewhat as an angsty teenager. Mm-hmm. And that's what all angsty teenagers do, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I had a Gamara teacher in high school who said, you're asking too many questions. Sit in the back of the room. Don't ask questions and you'll get a good grade. And that didn't sit well with me. So wow. I said, I'm <laughs> going to get really good at Gamara. I'm going to show him. I'm going to learn it all. Wow. I never thought I would finish it. <laughs> and I did. Amazing. Mazel tov. Thank you, thank you. You're sort of the dark horse. We were like planning all this stuff, Yomi stuff in the show, assuming no one in the show was finishing. And then I saw on Facebook, like, oh yeah, I finished Daf Yomi. And I was like, what? How is that possible? Yeah, I, I really, up until about a month ago, I was still in the mentality, I'm never going to finish this. This is a really large undertaking. And then it got to December and I said to myself, it looks like I'm going to finish this thing. What do I do? <laughs> and fortunately, my school was a really wonderful community that was like, we should make a seum for you. And that was really exciting to celebrate. That's fabulous. I'm so glad. And <laughs> what did you do at your Dafyomi Seum? Did you invite many thousands of um, black hat wearing men? So I thought that like the dancing celebratory piece would be a little bit weird if I did. Mm. So it actually was a professional development day. Um, so all of the faculty and staff at Schachter came together, and because we have people from a wide range of backgrounds, I got to present kind of what is Dafyomi, the history of it, 
some of the highlights of my learning and then to share with them the last piece of the Talmud. And we were able to celebrate that and I could see a Hadron and it was very exciting for me and I cried a little bit. I mean, it's a seven and a half year accomplishment. <laughs> That's like a pretty serious thing. Yes. Do you want to tell us some highlights of places in which you learned Dafiomi along the way? Definitely. Um, I think... Well, I took it with me on my gap year to Israel, and that was a lot of fun. So there was a lot of sitting on buses in Israel mm. with Gemara's open in front of me. So conversations I had were definitely fun. And it was, like, before you could learn Safari on your phone. Like, that was yes. not an option when no. you were on your gap year in Israel. Definitely not. So there were a lot of Safari, and there was a lot of, like, going around to different Safari stores in Israel to, like, buy sp- more Safari. Mm. And then thinking ahead of, ooh, Safari were cheaper in Israel. Maybe I should buy some for next year. Yeah. Um, so there's that. And then right, also... This was kind of an expensive undertaking for you also. Yes. As a, as a college student and as a high school graduate... <laughs> That was, like, a good portion of my lovely, generous allowance from my parents. Oh, thanks, parents. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there was that, and uh, lots of plane rides. And yeah. recently, I was really finishing up Masachat Nida, largely, on a trip to Puerto Rico. So fun. fun. Yeah. Well, your learning should be a schut for all the people in Puerto Rico affected <laughs> by the most recent natural disasters there. I mean. um, hopefully, you know, those, those brachas will radiate out. Oh, wow. Well, anyways, Anche Shalom is so proud and excited for you. Thank you. Did you start the new cycle or are you moving on to something else? I started it. I'm not so sure how much longer I'm going to stick with it because I'd like to take my time with some learning now. Mm, yeah. We've been talking a lot about the difference between Bikut style learning and Iyun style learning. And I heard. Dafiomi is uh, very much Bikut style and yes. there's, there's room in life for other things. Definitely. Yeah, but also, like, you've touched every page of the Bavli. That's an amazing, amazing thing. And yeah. we're so, so, so impressed and so excited for you. Thank you. Um, yeah. Um, so someone in the show was like, wow, this Molly person sounds amazing. How do I meet her? I want to learn her Torah. Um, where would they look to find you? So I can be found early Shabbat morning under the portrait of the Nitziv uh, at Hashkama. <laughs> Other than that, I can be found after Yeladinu hanging around Kiddush. And at Yaladinu, presumably. At Yaladinu. So we always love guests. People want to come in, share some Torah and some energy. We love it. (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Straw Hat. As always, thank you to our producer, Haley Leventhal, for all of her hard work in making this podcast possible. If you have positive feedback, we would love to hear that from you in person or by voice note, by email, or call us and leave us voicemail. Send it by a fax. All of those would be great options. And if you have negative feedback, as the sun sets on Friday afternoon, you can just like chuck that by the side of the road. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.